0: Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben ohara Byrne. Tonight, Alan Cross, host of the Ongoing History of New Music, joins me to talk about the show's 30th birthday, a fantastic feat for a show that he was reluctant to embrace at the outset, but is now headed for its 1,000th episode. How has the music evolved? How has the show evolved? How has the podcast helped make it popular around the world? We dig into the history of the Ongoing History of New Music. Writer and cartoonist Gabrielle Drolet joins me to talk about her work in The New Yorker magazine and the story she wrote named Canadian Online Publishing's best feel-good story of the year. And it's all about garlic in a jar. You won't want to miss it. What scams are the most prevalent these days? Who's being targeted and how? We'll dig into the Better Business Bureau's list of the 10 most common scams these days and how to protect yourself. But first, we look into the Toronto District School Board's investigation into allegations of anti-Black racism at a Toronto grade school with Kiri Daniel, Executive Director and Co-Founder of advocacy group Parents of Black Children. This next story is one you may have seen reported on out of Toronto this week. A teacher, vice-principal and principal of the Toronto District School Board primary school are on home assignment as the board investigates allegations of alleged incidents of racism uh, targeting a grade one student at the school the mother of the six-year-old who is black attends john fisher public school says a number of incidents culminated with him being isolated in a small room away from the classroom as punishment now the board said it learned of these allegations late last week and has launched an investigation into this the case was brought to the board by an advocacy group based in Toronto called Parents of Black Children. The mother of the six-year-old boy in question has said that her son had been disruptive, but that a series of incidents took place that involved him being separated from his classmates in the classroom itself and then held in that small room. Uh, meantime, parents, uh, 35 of them, in the class have signed a petition expressing support for the teacher on home assignment, uh, saying that he is or they are an extremely dedicated, attentive and caring teacher. Um, It also states that the parents take the allegations of anti-Black racism seriously. They want the board investigation to take place quickly and to include the voices of parents whose children are in the teacher's class. Um, Now, the board itself reminds all of us that the principal, vice principal, and teacher are not, uh, it's not a disciplinary action. That's not why they're not there, but it's to allow for a proper investigation and considering the number of allegations, that could take some time. But the advocacy group that I mentioned just a moment ago says that they've handled more than 350 complaints of anti-Black racism over the the past 18 months, and that the allegations, including these latest ones, are part of a much broader issue in our schools, one that needs to be addressed, one that needs to be talked about. Kiri Daniels, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Parents of Black Children, based in Toronto, and she joins me now. Kiri, thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, Tell me a bit about this incident, because I gather it was uh, the child's mum that approached you. Uh, what, What happened?
1: Yeah. So this, this incident came to us through a community connection and actually a school trustee in another region uh, reached out to us for support when mom had contacted that, that individual. When mom came to us, nothing that she said was a surprise to us, but what we were told was that her son was, you know, exhibiting a uh, behavior where he didn't want to go to school. He'd be in the car in the morning and crying mm-hmm. and saying, I don't want to go Um, She had had interactions with the school in the past, uh, with the educator in the past that were not pleasant, that were anchored in, in racism. She was told that her child was obnoxious. She was told that he was not intelligent enough to be in the French immersion program, that he should be in the English stream. And he was consistently being sent out of school, out of, out of the class, um, and isolated in the, uh, office and then eventually isolated in a tiny room just outside of the office. So this child was placed in the room by himself, uh, outside of the office. And when our advocate went into that room, she could barely stretch her hands out. That's how small it was. Not to mention that his desk in the classroom was separated from all physically separated from all of the other students so the kids the other kids are grouped he was physically separated pushed off against a wall by himself and the writing on the desk there was all sorts of um defamatory really um, writing on the desk, you know, poo-poo, caca, things that he had internalized. And he wrote those things because his teacher gave him a marker and told him to write what he was feeling. I didn't give him any, any paper. I told him to write them on, write it on his desk.
0: And, you know, what is... Just, so, just so we're clear, he's this is grade one, right? This is He's six or seven?
1: He's six years old. And, you know, I really want to illustrate just the fact that even if this child wrote those remarks on the desk, the fact that you would leave a child in an environment where they go into the classroom day in, day out, and they have to sit at that desk and face the word poo-poo, kaka, that they wrote about themselves, it is inhumane. And we wouldn't do that with adults. <laughs> and the fact that this is a six-year-old where that, that's had to experience this, it's no wonder that he didn't want to go to school. It's no wonder that school was a negative place for him. It, that is why the, the educator in this case needed to be removed from the classroom. It's also why the vice principal and the administ- and the principal needed to be removed because they were upholding this kind of um, neglect and this kind of abuse of, of a child.
0: The TTSB, the uh, Toronto District School Board, has launched an investigation into this. What would you like to see come of that?
1: I want to see action, which is it's not enough to place the perpetrators in this case on home assignment. What we need is them removed. As far as I'm concerned, nobody who would allow an innocent child to sit at a desk with words written, negative words written, without erasing those words day in, day out, because it was weeks. It wasn't just days. Nobody who allows a child to sit at a desk that and seeing those words should be a teacher, that is not conducive to someone who should be in charge of children or in, in contact with children. It's it's abusive. It's cruel. You know, we can talk about the isolation, which is also cruel, which I might add in Ontario, you can't even isolate uh, young offenders. But they're doing it to children in the education system. You know, what message is that sending to his peers? What message is it sending to them when they, when they walk by and see the words that are written about him on the desk?
0: You'll know that parents, I guess, have started, some other parents in the class have started a petition in defense of the teacher, at least. They they certainly want an investigation into this. What do, what do you make of that?
1: You know, you hear things like kids growing up in the same family and having very different experiences with the same parents. It's the same thing with the teacher. So there are students in that class who would likely love the teacher and have a wonderful experience, but it doesn't matter because for this one child, That was, it was not an experience that was wonderful, right? And in fact, it is an experience that was highly problematic. And so if it's highly problematic just for this one child, that person should not be teaching. It's not as if, you know, you can say... They, they've made a, a small error. <laughs> this is not a small error. This is intention. This is intentional. Um, we have video of the desk where he was, where the little boy was isolated and, and right. sitting. We have video of the room where he was isolated uh, and sitting. So it can be very possible that, you know, many parents like the teacher, many students like the teacher. That doesn't negate the experience in this case. Many things can be true at once. When we're talking about racism, um, which this is anchored in, it's not every child that this is happening to. It's a black child. This, you know, this kind of abuse um, within the education system. It happens to our black children. There's a case out in the Yukon uh, where they had launched the class action because indigenous children were also being isolated in rooms and in in that case, restrained. So you've had you've
0: had other parents come forward as well. Have you not?
1: Yes, um, we've had a few other parents come forward. They're going through our intake process at the moment as we try and unpack what's happening for them. It's never just an isolated incident. Um, if that school has a, a room that they're using for detention, if they are if they have that room, they're not just using it for one child, they're likely using it for others. Um, so yes, we have had two parents come forward and we're working through the cases with them.
0: Kiri, when you look at, when one looks at this from the outside, obviously you're thinking, oh, maybe this, maybe there's a, and this word is, maybe there's lessons to be learned here that can help everyone. Do you think it's too far gone for, for the people in this situation to be shown if, if we find out this has all taken place as explained, that this is a, a moment that, that everyone could learn from, or is it too late for that, do you think?
1: There are always learnings that individuals can take from situations. I think in this case, if we're talking about the three individuals that are that are involved, the educator, the administrator, and the vice principal, this is cruel and unusual punishment. From our perspective, they should not be they should not be teaching anybody from the secretaries right right on up who were in that uh, office and allowed a child to be imprisoned in a room, they really are, they need to be culpable and they, there, there should be some really serious questions that are asked. Um, in terms of, you know, what other boards can learn from, I think, you know, one of the things I want to, I'll say two things. The first is the mom in this case tried to address these concerns on her own. So she went to the principal to address concerns with the teacher. It didn't work for obvious reasons. She went to the superintendent, didn't really get anywhere. And it was only after trying to go through the process with the school that she reached out to her community for support. And that's how we got involved. Once we were involved as an advocacy organization, the TDSB moved extremely swiftly, very quickly to remove uh, and place on home assignment a principal, vice principal and educator. But that was only after advocates became involved. So my question is always, well, what, what would have happened in this situation If there were no advocates here, this boy would still be in a situation where isolated in in the office and sent out of class and not able to access his education. And so that's where advocacy becomes really important. And I think for other school boards, that's what they can take from this. Number one, the swift action that the TDSB took um, once the advocacy team got involved, but also the need for advocacy. This is why advocacy is so important because oftentimes, you know, parents are, it's like they're screaming in the wilderness and they need advocates to stand beside them to kind of help part the trees. And that's what we do. And it, it's beneficial for both parents and the system. And so, you know, when we talk about learning opportunities, like that's what we, that's, those are the learning opportunities. It's when we see acts like this, we have to move swiftly. It is not about who likes who. It is not about this person being a nice person because for all intents and purposes, sure, they might be very nice people, but this experience is not a nice experience, right? And it doesn't it doesn't change the fact of what has happened here. And we don't see that urgency all the time, but we want to.
0: You've had something like 360 complaints over the last year and a half that you've fielded from, from parents. Um, not necessarily a situation exactly like this one, but not different.
1: Yes, we we do. We have a process where families can contact us. They fill out an intake form, and I mean, it ranges. We have children uh, in some school boards who are trying to scratch the black off their skin because the experience that they're having in the school board is telling them that they don't they shouldn't be black. They don't want to be black, and they're trying to literally just scratch it off of themselves. You know, we've had one child who who woke up unable to see, um, and the parent had to take took the child to the emergency room, to, the first thing the doctor asked was, well, what's going on at home? And mom said, nothing's going on at home, but at school, like, here's what's going on at school. And the response from the doctor is that it, it's a trauma response and the eyesight will come back. Um, we've had another little girl wake up and she's lost her ability to walk. The school board's providing occupational therapy and supports and, you know, tutoring and to be available to her. It's these are difficult situations that we're facing and that our, our children are facing across the province.
0: Yeah. And and across the country, I have no doubt. And and again, if 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 just in general you believe in and I was saying this as we first spoke, that if you believe in equality of opportunity in our school system, you need to make sure everyone at a young age is given that opportunity to excel, right? And, and this is gonna there's gonna be some tough conversations here though, Kiri, I think. Some conversations that people aren't comfortable with, and we're seeing it already.
1: Yes, we are, and you know. One of the questions or the comments I've heard is, well, you know, maybe the child was a distraction or maybe the child was um, a danger to themselves or others. And what I'll say to that is there is no excuse. There is no legitimacy at all to isolating a child, to using that kind of, that kind of technique. Um, We got a call actually from, A residential school survivor who heard this, who heard the news and was so triggered. That person called us to tell that, to tell us about their experience, you know, in resident, in residential school. We need to learn from the past. Canada has a history of how Indigenous people were treated within um, the education system, within all systems, but within residential schools in particular. Um, And we cannot see that replicated. We should not tolerate seeing that replicated for other communities.
0: What's your message then to educators, parents out there about a problem I, I suspect that not many people have stopped to think about enough, perhaps?
1: I think the message is we need to demand more from our education system. You know, Black History Month is, was last just a week ago, and it is not enough for schools to just kind of lean on that and say like, this is what we're doing for inclusion. And this is what we're doing for diversity. Anti-Black racism within the education system uh, is so much more nuanced than that. Um, you know, people might question, say, well, how do you know, like, why is that racist? It's racist because it's not happening to all children. It's happening to our black children. And we have data to tell us it's happening to our black children. I will tell you something, which is everything that, uh, the mom in this situation shared. I can relate to on a personal level, you know, the, the fact that her, Son's size at six years old because he's the tallest in the class was, um, kind of weaponized and used. I've had that with my own children, right? Mm-hmm. Reference their size. That's, a, that's the adultification of Black children. You know, this idea of pushing kids out of French immersion. We see that that is there. That is data telling us that that happens to our Black kids. We see that even within our own data. And so, I would say to parents, you know, um, if you're seeing something, question it, raise the alarm. Sometimes we don't know what's happening with our children, right? Our kids go to school unprotected. Educators are afraid to speak up for Black children because they're afraid of repercussions. They're afraid to, you know, that they might lose their job or they might be moved. You know, we need others to be our eyes and ears. You know, it boggles my mind that anybody could walk into a classroom, see a desk written with these words and isolated from all the other peers and nobody questioned that it was okay it's just unimaginable it's unfathomable kiri daniel thank you so much thank you thank you for having me
0: you know with budgets stretched thin these days the price of everything's so high we're all we always try to avoid falling for scams right But especially these days, there just isn't much money to spare. And yet, you know, the lure of a good deal, what's too good to be true, can be pretty alluring these days. And that leaves us us vulnerable. Of course it does. So the same things that make it even more unfortunate to fall victim to a scam probably make us more prone. To falling for a scam so what should you be watching out for and how can you best protect yourself well the better business bureau has just released its canadian risk report tracking the most common scams out there It details some 1300 scam reports to shine a light on which ones are most popular who is being targeted how they're being targeted how much money it's costing people what the long-term impacts are because of course i mean we've all fallen victim to some form of scam over the years whether it was very minor or very serious, and you know how you feel about it, too. It's embarrassing, right? It has a psychological impact as well as a financial one. This year, a new one takes top place, home improvement scams. Home improvement up a whopping 51% compared with 2021. Uh, Cryptocurrency scams are up there, too. There's some new ones to talk about as well to help us do all of that. Nisha Hochi is with the Better Business Bureau in BC. Nisha, thank you for your time today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So scammers are always busy, right? I guess in this case, according to the Better Business Bureau, especially these days, according to the Better Business Bureau, what qualifies as a scam?
2: So we use something called the risk index to establish which scams are the riskiest and and so different things are, are, are established as a scam and so really it is someone perpetrating one thing and doing another. I mean that's that's kind of the essence of it and so we categorize these scams into into different types of scams and that's how we, we try to establish groupings and then we have a formula called the risk index which we, we use to figure out which ones are the riskiest and so the risk index really looks at exposure, how often does the scam come up, how often do we encounter it, susceptibility, the likelihood of loss, how often do we, you know, do we fall for the scam, and then monetary loss, how much money do people actually lose to it.
0: So when you added all those up for uh, recently, home home improvement or just home renovation ones seem to come out on top. It, it's not surprising. Uh, people tend to, I think you pointed out, when people fall victims to these scams, they do fall, you know, they tend to fall victim to them. Or the. The, the amount of work done for the amount of money spent is always very, very minimal, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing. There is a scam for everyone. But yeah, home improvement this year was up by, I think, about 51%. And so that's huge. That's really saying something. And it was definitely the the one that Canadian consumers were the most susceptible to, like just shy of 80%. That is that is huge. Oh. And I mean, the thing is, is that we we don't... So the numbers that we've given around median loss, like that's that's the midpoint of all numbers. It's not the average. And and the numbers that we have seen on the large end, like those those are big there. Those are big. They're tens of thousands of dollars. But we are really looking at everything. Right. You could have put a little bit down. You could have put a lot down. Um, but that's definitely one of the number one. Sc- it is the number one, riskiest scam for us. But it's also one of the number one things we've been hearing in the news. Right. You hear about this right. all the time.
0: Yeah. How how do they, have they changed at all? How are they manifesting themselves these days? Because we know scammers are always looking for new techniques.
2: So it's interesting. This is not one of the ones where it's really tech heavy. Uh, I mean, there's a version of it that uses technology and is really more about advertising, et cetera. But a lot of the scams that we're hearing about are someone coming around and knocking on your door and saying, Hey, you know, I work in the area and I, uh, I thought I'd just see if you had anything you'd like to get done. Uh, Normally I charge for home inspections, but you know, because we're already here, I'll do it for you for free. So now you've invited them into your home. Right. And the next step is, Oh, Oh, well, you know, because I'm here, I can probably give you a better deal, or I can get it done a little bit faster. I'm already bringing materials into the area. Let let's you know let let's make get this going. But you know, you need to commit now because I'm only in the area for next for the next little while, right? And so they've created right. urgency. They've told you you're going to get a good deal. And so on a handshake, you're putting down money. You're saying like, hey, yeah, sure, let's do this. No contract, no references, no conversation. It's it's charisma, it's charm, it's saying all the right things, it's doing all the right things. I mean, that's one version of it. Um, Another version of it is fake sites and fake social media or fake advertising. You know, they drop it in your mail or drop it at your door or, you know, you see it online. And these are kind of these fly-by-night contractors. They're there one day and gone the next. And so, you know, after you've agreed and given your deposit, that social media account no longer exists, that phone number is disconnected, the email bounces back, and you have no way of reaching them.
0: Yeah, no, not much in the way of recourse here either, right?
2: Unfortunately not. I mean, when you're paying for these types of things, you're often paying, you you know, check or or e-transfer, other things. Credit cards are the only type of, um, you know, payment method that actually has some recourse at all. And that's not a guarantee, but we do recommend, I mean, wherever you can use your credit card, because at least there is some potential option. But anything like an e-transfer, a wire transfer, gift cards, even, you know, people will ask for the most, for the the wildest things. and, And sometimes we do it. And, there is no recourse recourse with those there's no reversing that
0: who's being targeted are you seeing a difference in in the in the uh, in the demographic that's being targeted or with something like home improvement you'd think it would be pretty much across the board
2: so it's interesting um, there is a scam for every age group uh, their susceptibility and median dollar loss went up for every single age group eighteen to sixty five plus except twenty five to thirty four which is kind of funny because I, I think that that's a very high tech um you know age group but it really only went down slightly like so when i say it went down it went down by one percent and 45 dollars like these are it's a nominal uh it's a nominal decrease but overall every single age group is being affected um some things that are interesting to note is there are a couple of differences in gender so women are exposed to um scams a lot more often they are definitely they get a lot of exposure to scams from a susceptibility standpoint of who's falling for it men and women are falling for it almost as equally it's a one percentage point difference so again very nominal difference where they're all falling for it but how much is lost is interesting women are losing Mm -hmm. about 250 men are losing about 450. so men are losing more they have less exposure but they're losing more when they do. And so that's that's an interesting kind of uh, realization that perhaps because they're not as exposed as often, they're they're falling for it a little bit bigger. They're taking a bigger risk.
0: Yeah, easier to reel in that big fish if you're a scammer. Um, you've been seeing some other ones, one that was clearly that we've talked about on this show already. Crypto scams was number two, was number one last year. I don't know, crypto scams like Buyer Beware, right? Sometimes with those ones, I, I think... Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being too harsh on crypto scams. Uh, but some new ones in there too. Rental scams, vacation share scams, the rental ones we know all about, right? Because this is something that has happened more and more as the rental market across the country has got tighter and tighter.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so so there's a lot of things here. With rental, it's come back up because now people are moving again. And as you said, the metro cities, the rental options are less and less. And so with rentals, uh, what you're going to see is people putting up advertisements that they don't actually have access to, right? So, oh, I'm renting this for my elderly parent, or it's, you know, I've moved already, I had to leave urgently, um, so if you give me a deposit, I'll have my friend meet you and give you the keys, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that, that's one where they're using someone else's digital ad, you know, and recopying it and saying it's for here. So especially when you are searching for rentals, do a reverse search, right? Re, re-look at the, you know, use the information of the ad or use the images. That That's one way to protect yourself. But that one's come back up a lot. And I see that it's a lot of these lists are based off of our behavior, right? So consumer behavior has changed post-pandemic. Rentals are now, you know, you're actually moving again. You're thinking about different places to live. During the pandemic, a lot of people were kind of staying put. Same thing with travel, vacations, et cetera. Also, you know, back on the list. And so that's one part of it. Um, Backing up a little bit to crypto, I mean, the cynicism here is that you are right to say we don't know enough about it, right? We don't know enough about digital assets right now. The, the common person doesn't, but they are hearing the get-rich-quick kind of idea, the it seems like an easy way to invest or, you know, promising really attractive returns. And so most of the reports we received, the, the purchase the trade, or where it was stored was turned out to be fraudulent. So any digital assets, you really have to do your research, and we really highly recommend um, the BC Security Commission's investright.org website. It's a great place to start, and understanding where a legal transaction can actually even take, take place and what digital assets are available to purchase in Canada, because not all are.
0: Online scams have also been, now that's not surprising at all, Nisha, because we do so much of our shopping online now compared to before, but what do those look like?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a big one. So the fact that nearly a third of all Canadian scams, scam reports were online purchase scams of some way or another, That that's huge and that says so much about the way that we engage scammers are really sophisticated they find us where we are so that's you know kids are being targeted on gaming apps we're being targeted through our phones through emails through text messages phone calls mail you know like this is this is prevalent and so cyber security on all levels is actually very very important now you know we we Say that you know you have your phone with you, you have your wallet with you. Losing your phone is probably more dangerous than losing your wallet nowadays, and you definitely want to be careful about the access that you give. And so, you know, we used to get links through emails, and now we're getting them through text messages. And so, you you get something and it says, oh, you have a package and you need to click here. Well, did you really right. have a package, you know? And you click. What are you putting on your phone? What are you putting on your computer? Um. So, so the online portion of this is really the f- the current and the future of how scam. Are getting to
0: us. What I find interesting about the online one, too, is that it just takes one moment of inattention, right? I mean, I've received hundreds of those text messages about Amazon packages and packages right. here and the CRA one. And it's just that one time that you make a mistake because you weren't paying attention. That's the problem is they're, in, they're not even that sophisticated. They're just constant and they depend on you making that mistake once.
2: Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. You are absolutely right. I joined a loyalty program and I had put in my phone number just recently. Like I'd been a part of that program for years and they started sending me text messages. I searched it. I Googled it before I clicked it because I didn't recognize it. But I did that because I live and breathe this. I am in this every right. day. But if I wasn't, I, I can guarantee a few years ago, I probably would have just clicked, clicked the link. And yes, turned out that they were, the link goes to a coupon and it was fine. But I didn't know that. And so the education piece is so important for us. It's part of why we run so many webinars and in-person webinars and provide so much content online is because consumer education and understanding how scams get at you is really the only way to protect yourself. That and your own due diligence, like doing your research.
0: Yeah, there are some rules of thumb, right? And I think they, they continue to apply even as the scams themselves evolve, the way they're delivered evolves. But what are those golden rules, if, uh, if you could remind listeners?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are some some general rules that you want to follow, right? And and the first is never send money to anyone that you haven't met face to face, right? And and beyond face to face that you haven't vetted, right? Make sure that whoever you're working with references, you know, getting their identification etc. that's really important. And if we if we were to talk specifically about home improvement scams and references, references should not be a phone call alone when it comes to a home improvement scam. You want to physically go see the work because that is when you will get a good sense of how you know what kind of what kind of work was it. What you know and is this a real reference? Because fake reviews is also very prevalent. Um, one of the things we've just talked about: don't open links or attachments and unsolicited emails or text messages, etc. Um, Don't believe everything that you see or read. Scammers are great at mimicking, at mimicking official seals, titles, fonts, websites. They will make it look like it is legitimate. Even the caller ID can be faked. And so just because it, looks like that and i know this sounds very scary like you can't trust anyone it's just really following your gut right we have we have statistics that show that almost 75% of people have been able to save themselves from losing money on a scam just because of a gut feeling like if they stop and take 5 we we call it taking 5 right take 5 minutes 5 days 5 hours you know whatever it is to stop and and reassess and one of the ways that i talk about reassessing is share the story You know, if someone came to you with this story, oh, I got this offer, what would you say to that friend? What would you say to that family member? Would you be like, that sounds too good to be true? If so, you know, take a pause.
0: Oh, we Um, fool ourselves, though, don't we, don't we, Nisha? We fool ourselves. We think we're not going to be that person. Yeah, and wow, you know, I don't really want to pay that much to have my fence fixed. That sounds like a great deal. They'll probably do it. You know, they just need the money
3: yeah yeah it's every so time hard. we do every time we do
2: um and and that's that's really part of it is we get so caught up so there's something you know there's a term that we use it's the fraudster's toolbox right ways that right. they get through to you and i often say that charisma is one of those tools i mean there are legitimate tools like spoofing and all that that you know fraudsters use but to me, being charismatic, being a great salesperson is a tool of the trade and being able to say, like, oh, don't worry. Like, I've got you. It's good. You'll be fine. And you want to believe that. And I understand that. I also understand that some of the, the excuses and the, or the reasons that they give for something, for example, I, we need more money because X, you know, inflation, material goods, etc., It it sounds very, very plausible, and there are contractors who are saying that, and it is true, but there should be backup to that, right? Like, show the invoice, showing the information, having it in a contract that says, you know, we'll provide you with the invoices and this is the amount of material that we need. You know, being really specific, there is a way to to ask for that and it be legitimate. Now, there's the other version of it. Well, we opened this wall and now there's this. And so now you have to pay a whole bunch more, you know. (laughs) And so uh, there's, there's, you just have to be really... Buyer
0: beware. Buyer beware. (laughs) You should leave it there. Thank you. Thank you so much for walking us through this tonight. I know we'll be talking about this again soon. So thanks again.
2: Absolutely. Thanks
0: for having me. We are, of course, surrounded these days by recipes and videos, websites crammed with way, with recipes and ways to cook, right? There's no excuse now not to cook something properly. I mean, I remember when I was young, trying to teach myself how to cook, and it was pretty awful at times. Um, you know, you had, you had like the joy of cooking you'd stolen from home, kind of. That was it. Or maybe a few magazines where you could find some – or something cut out of the newspaper. Did you remember cutting recipes out of the newspaper? And that, that was about it. I mean, now, you know, you have YouTube, you have videos, you have – every major magazine or newspaper seems to have some sort of recipe section. The New York Times has recipes. Uh, they're everywhere. If you get the, that sort of those the ready-made meals, they all come with recipes. You can use them again. I mean, we now live – in in a place where it's really hard not to cook properly. I mean, you pay not pay attention to the measurements or the cooking times, and I still mess up the odd recipe, but it is pretty easy to get it right. I mean, never really have, have we had such a rich resource that can carry us from the grocery store to the dining room table. But with that has come a heaping tablespoon of scorn for those who somehow break some of the golden rules and one of them these days is certainly this idea of always having to use fresh ingredients for instance garlic well my next guest was converted while she was in university from jars of the stuff you know the minced garlic you buy in the store it's easy you don't have to peel you don't have to crush you don't have to clean um to stuff from the produce section she was convinced that there was no way that you should be using garlic from a jar you, just, you were doing yourself and everything you're eating a, such a disservice. In fact, if anything, you're violating the rules of food by doing it this way. So sure enough, she switched. She went to you know buying fresh garlic and that's what she used all the time. But then a nerve injury uh, a few years back had her reconsider why it was necessary. Uh, And how a certain kind of culinary snobbery should really be called into question. We should ask ourselves, if someone says, I do things this way, ask yourself why. Because in her case, she literally could no longer dice garlic or crush garlic. She couldn't. So she had to go back to some of the things that she had sort of turned her nose up at over time. The reason why I tell you this long story to get into it is for one very particular reason. The result was an article that she wrote. Um, that was really quite interesting. It's it's really a lovely little article, and it's all about in defense of a jar of garlic. That's what it's called, and she published it in the Walrus, uh, a Canadian magazine, over the summer. Uh, in defense of garlic, in defense of garlic in a jar, to be specific, in defense of garlic in a jar, and it has now won gold at the Canadian Online Publishing Awards for the best feel good story of the year. So I figured, here we are. It's Tuesday night. It's still a little chilly out. Summer's not quite here. We have to move the clocks forward on the weekend. Why don't we talk about something uplifting? And that's not all. Gabrielle Drillet, who's the author of that article, also happens to draw cartoons for the New Yorker magazine. And if you follow me on Twitter, Ben O'Hara Byrne, um, you'll know how much I love New Yorker Cartoons. So, part of my reason for for roping Gabrielle into an interview was also to ask her all about what it's like to draw New Yorker magazine cartoons. You know, they're just one frame uh, with just a couple of lines. Usually, they're often very, very good. Uh, and I wanted to find out how that worked as well. One of my favorite things out there. So, a feel good story, both on paper and in life. Gabrielle Drolet is a freelance writer, cartoonist, and she joins us from Montreal. Uh, Gabrielle, thank you. Congratulations.
4: Thank you so much. And thank you for having me.
0: It's a nice thing to win best feel good story. I mean, so much of what we honor in news is sort of is in the investigative and the, you know, the the, the bleak. And, and yet, and here you are celebrating something positive. Tell me a bit about how that story came together.
4: That story came together about a year ago, actually. I was writing I I was just writing a lot and thinking a lot about accessibility, specifically in cooking. Um, About two years ago, I developed a nerve condition called thoracic outlet syndrome. And it's one of those things that for a lot of people is, you know, short term and not super serious. But for me, because I didn't get the right treatment on time and a bunch of factors played in, it, it just became disabling and chronic. And so, yeah, this time last year, I was just struggling a lot to cook and In finding accessible ways for me to cook and tools to use, I found that a lot of people were really snobbish and rude about those tools. So one of them in particular was pre-minced garlic. The the issue that I have affects my hands more than anything else. And I just couldn't chop fresh garlic anymore. I couldn't peel it. I couldn't use it. it. It was so hard and so painful. And yeah, when I started using jarred garlic instead... I learned pretty quickly that people are really averse to it. And that's fine. But the way people talked about it, it was like they didn't understand that actually, you know, people are disabled and people need to cook however they need to cook. They need to get by however they need to get by. And for me, that means garlic in a jar
0: and it had been garlic in a jar back in your early we all remember when you learned to cook back i learned to cook back in university and it wasn't pretty uh, mm-hmm. but we all learned to cook at a certain time we're sort of on our own and and you would, were using i guess jarred garlic way back when and someone mm-hmm. pointed out that it was a uh, a faux pas of the highest order
4: yes exactly yeah when i had that that same phase you're describing you know of being in first year of university and away from home and learning to cook i was cooking with with jarred garlic and one of my roommates who was You know, someone who really prided herself on her cooking and and cooked a lot was like, what? What is that? You know, she kind of turned her nose up at it and didn't say much, but I could tell. I was like, oh, okay, this isn't the way people are supposed to cook, right? And from there, I got really into cooking as well. You know, Bon Appetit videos were really big at the time, so I was watching a lot of cooking shows and reading a lot of cooking media, and yeah, I learned over and over and over again. You hear these messages about how fresh is best and fresh garlic is always the way to go and you know i'm not i'm not denying the fact that fresh garlic is you know undeniably different and sometimes yeah better than jarred garlic but i think what was interesting was that once it was no longer a choice for me or for me people still didn't understand that and they weren't compassionate about that and yeah i think people are really closed minded about what we cook with and how we cook
0: because there's a passage in that story, and it's a wonderful story. If you can find it on the walrus and the defense of garlic in a jar, it's called. There is a period of time where you're you're literally chopping garlic in pain, and that mm-hmm. must have been a pretty eye opening moment for you.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, when I first started having this chronic pain issue and and started struggling to do so many things around the house, right, from brushing my teeth to like buttoning up a shirt to to anything, I refused to to change the way that I cooked, right? I found adaptations for most of the other things in my home, but when it came to cooking at this point, you know, I had been cooking for years in a certain way and I prided myself on that. And I was like, I'm not going to start cooking in what I thought was the gross way or the bad way, right? I didn't want to use pre-minced garlic or pre-shredded cheese or all of these things that, you know, now I, I rely on and I love, but yeah at the time I was like I'm going to use garlic because that's what the recipe calls for and that's what I need to use and it hurt it it was so hard and on days where I couldn't do that or it was just too painful or, or my hands like I couldn't use them properly I would just not cook with garlic right or I would order in or or make something frozen and yeah it was hard I I think it's tough to accept that your body's not capable of what it used to be and it was really hard for me to actually start using these tools that are so important for me now.
0: And there's the feel-good part of the story too, is that there comes a time where you say to yourself, I love to cook and eat more than I need to care about what's right and what someone else thinks is right and wrong about how I'm doing it.
4: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know that took a long time because for a while I was like, okay, this thing is temporary and it's going to get better. And in some ways it has, right? I'm a lot better now than I used to be, but I still, you know, if I am to chop fresh garlic that causes me pain and that pain persists for for hours or days and yeah, I think I reached a point through you know, talking to other people with abilities and just coming to terms with my state, you know, and and my condition where I was like actually I just need to get by, right? And there's no there's no reason for me to hurt myself and actively make my condition worse. Because some people think the way I cook is gross. It doesn't matter. And yeah, I'm going to use jarred garlic and I'm going to use pre-sliced vegetables and pre-shredded cheese. And yeah, I, I think it felt really special to finally get there and to understand that it didn't matter what people thought or how rude they were about it on the internet
0: or whatever. What's the reaction been? I would assume that there are a lot of people out there who face some of the same issues that you faced, you have had to make some of the same choices and would like to do so uh, without being hassled about it.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the actual catalyst for me writing the piece was the fact that a few times I had tweeted just being like Freeman's garlic isn't that bad or like it's good and fine. And people were so mad at me <laughs> immediately. Right. And yeah, I think since writing the piece, there've been so many people who have had, similar experiences where they've been like yeah i'm i'm also ashamed of using tools i need whether it's in the kitchen or in other parts of their lives because it's just it's hard when people are hardwired to think okay this is the right way to do this or like this is the right way to cook the right way to follow a recipe whatever and yeah there are a lot of people who had shame around the tools they used and ultimately they are accessibility tools right even if you don't think of pre-minced garlic as that kind of tool, it, it can be for some. And so that was special. And on the other side of things, there were people who were not disabled or didn't have chronic pain who read the piece and were like, I've never thought about this before. You just don't think about, okay, well, how would I approach this if I couldn't do this the way I'm doing it now, right? I think it's easy to think about disability and to think about very certain kinds of accessibility tools or ways of getting by, but you don't think about like, okay, how do how do you chop garlic? How does that work? And yeah, I think a lot of people found the piece a little bit eye opening in that sense.
0: Gabriel Drolet is with us this half hour. She's a freelance writer and cartoonist. Your work in the New Yorker, tell me how that because that is one of the most coveted places to be. If you if you're a cartoonist, I know. Uh, if for listeners who haven't seen them, there's usually just single frame with a little text not much and they tend to encapsulate something very quickly and just a glance and a quick read they're often fantastic but it is a true art to get it right how did you get involved in in drawing those
4: yeah you know it's actually really special that I've been doing that and it's been such an honor it's been a few years now and I first started that you know during the pandemic um, the pandemic started and I used to draw a lot when I was a teenager and a kid And I just hadn't drawn really since then, but I loved drawing. I loved cartoons in particular. So yeah, I started submitting to the New Yorker and the first cartoon they ever bought from me was actually based on my time at Western University. So when I was at Western, there were so many geese everywhere and they were very aggressive, very mean. And yeah, I made like a silly joke about about geese, you know, attacking people in the park and the New Yorker bought it and I've been working with them since.
0: Yeah, that's the, the mum goose tells the, tells the, uh, the kids that they're going to learn how to terrorize a park today. That's, that's their, uh, that's a great one. Uh, where do you find the inspiration? I mean, where do you find the inspiration for those in the same? I've noticed, you know, there was one recently about, you know, leaving a cup of tea to, to sort of age on the table. We all do that, right? Brew yeah. tea, then forget about it. Uh, a lot of it is a lot of it just based on sort of le quotidien, as they say in French, the day to day stuff.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, you know, I submit tunes that don't ever see the light of day, (laughs) sillier or wilder or wackier. But I think the things that tend to fly in the New Yorker that the New Yorker tends to love are, yeah, those little jokes or kind of quips about everyday things that we all experience, right? And so sometimes you're, you're going through your day and you'll experience something and I'm like, oh, that would make a great cartoon. And I write it down and Actually, you know, often the jokes don't always come so easily. Five minutes, I sit down and I, I write what I think are funny ideas. And during those five minutes, I kind of have to write them down. And at the end, you know, most of them aren't funny, but there will be one or two things that stick out and I can I can try and work with that. But yeah, it is mostly based on, you know, just my life or what I'm observing in the world around me.
0: Right. And a lot of hit and miss, right? I guess people forget that you just don't sit down and you know, you know, sort of uh fling one off in a few seconds. This takes some thought and takes some some doing and publishing in The New Yorker, um, mm-hmm. publishing in The Walrus about some of the experiences you've had at a time where clearly you were in physical pain and unable unable to do some of the things that you had been able to do previously, how did you yeah. overcome those challenges?
4: Yeah, it was really difficult in the beginning to figure out, you know, how to how to do things and I just couldn't do them the way I used to, right? And that's what was tough. But With drawing, it was actually a really unfortunate timeline where I sold my first cartoon to the New Yorker and it was such a big celebration. I was so excited and and so happy about it. And then it was just a few weeks later, I stopped being able to draw at all, right? I'm doing a lot better now. That was about two years ago. But yeah, I had to take a few months off, which was mentally and emotionally taxing, obviously. And now it's just a matter of being very gentle with myself and aware of my limitations as well. So if I have a day where I'm writing a lot or I'm you know, drawing something already for a certain project, I just have to acknowledge like, okay, I can't take on another thing. Something that's physically tough, I can't do something else. And my actual work setup as well is very specific. My super ergonomic office chair, which keeps me upright so my nerves are less condensed, a whole ergonomic setup and, and a big grip on my pencil. And the other key thing too is that I have an alarm so every 15 minutes and I have to get up and and walk around and stretch and do my physio exercises and take a break. And that's tough too because anyone who, you know, does any sort of creative practice knows part of it is just getting into the the headspace, right? And you get into a flow and it feels so nice, but yeah, unfortunately, you know, I have to take those breaks and there are still days where I just can't draw if it's if it's too painful or too too hard, but for the most part, I've been able to find adaptations and it's just about being aware of how much I can or can't do on a specific day.
0: Well, it's been, certainly been uh, a remarkable year of achievement for you, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated.
4: hmm Thank you so much for having me.
0: 30 years, you know, is a long time and it's an eternity in this business. But that's how long Canada's longest running radio doc program has been on the airwaves. Alan Cross started the ongoing history of new music with episode one. On February 28th, 1993, Whitney Houston and the Bodyguard soundtrack were dominating the pop charts at the time, but this show would stay well away from the top 40. Instead, it would look to dissect so-called alternative music and try to weave stories and histories around the music of the day with the bands and the albums of the past that influenced it, sort of a family tree of this music, drawing links to things. It's fascinating. Here's a sample of episode number one of the ongoing history of new music.
5: This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome to the Ongoing History of New Music. I'm Alan Cross, and it's going to be our mission to track what happened to music between punk and the present. And with
0: that, launched nearly a thousand shows. They're going to hit a thousand shows in November. But with the passage of time, of course, came an evolution, not just in the music, but also in the content. The show would branch out from radio to a podcast that would become one of the most popular in the country and heard around the world, all the while shaping and informing new generations of music fans. So, as Alan gets set for episode number 1000 coming up in November, as he celebrates. Uh, 30 years just a few weeks ago or a week a week and a bit ago we wanted to welcome to the show to dig into the history of the ongoing history of new music and alan cross joins us now welcome to the show
3: thank you for, for asking me
0: remarkable 30 years i mean i i'll be honest i remember those early shows and it was hard to hard to picture 30 years it feels like time has just flown by
3: It does, although when I start thinking about all the work that I had to put in back on those early days, I'm surprised we got this far. This is 1993 when I started, and this is before the internet. It was before anybody was writing any books on punk rock or new wave or alternative music. Finding the records you needed, especially when it came to exploring the, the deep history of this music, was very difficult. So a lot of used record stores, a lot of expensive british imports and german imports it was awful uh, it was really really hard this explains why we're probably not going to spend too much time re-releasing or turning some of those old the very first shows into into podcasts because uh, they they just weren't up to snuff for when compared to the the programs that came later
0: And yet, when you listen, I mean, I listened to that original one from Sunday, February 28, 1993, and you can see the template is there. The idea is there. When you listen to it, you can see where the rest of it was heading at one point.
3: Well, that was a guess. (laughs) That was (laughs) a total guess. I knew that I wanted it to start with uh, with an epilogue, a cold open. I knew it had to be three segments, and I knew it had to be no longer than 52 minutes. (laughs) And that's basically that's it template
0: yeah you in the blank yellow pad as you mentioned just sitting there trying to conjure up something from from your knowledge of music your vast knowledge of music uh, and the file cabinet the famous file cabinet
3: well i tell you my knowledge of music wasn't that vast because you know we were starting i was starting from from scratch you know everything that I learned, I learned secondhand. You know, working at the radio station, uh, combing through newspaper clippings, combing through the magazines that we would get from the UK, like the Melody Maker and NME and whatever else. And yeah, the famous file cabinets. There were two file cabinets at the radio station where we stored all the press releases and any press clippings that we would get. Uh, that would that would be you know for research in, in for, for any of the bands that we would be doing. I have those exact filing cabinets in my storage room. They helped me get through some, some really, really rough times. I should also point out that the radio program began because the CFMY was under new ownership. And there was some concern at the very beginning that the new management was going to change formats from this alternative rock thing to country. But they did some research and they discovered that, oh, we have these bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and Red Hot Chili Peppers and so on. OK, well, this music seems to be on the ascendant. So we'll stick with the format, with the music format, but we're going to have to do a better job of educating the audience as to what, we're, what this music is all about, because it has a, a history distinct and different from mainstream rock. So they looked around the staff and they found a person with a history degree, me, and said that you're doing this. And the show was going to be called The Ongoing History of New Music. And I said, well, you know, I really like just playing records from two till six in the afternoon, Monday to Friday. So uh, thanks, but no thanks. And they said, okay, that's fair. Uh, here's a vanilla envelope. Inside you'll find a settlement and a severance package and we'll see you later. Oh. Uh, okay now that you put it that way I had just bought a house I had just gotten married and I really had no what you'd consider to be portable skills so I had no choice but to uh, accept their offer which was worse than I thought originally because they actually severed me and hired me back as an independent contractor to save on payroll taxes and benefits and uh, I was a part-timer Saturday and Sunday morning from 6 a.m. to noon. And then from Wednesday to Friday, I was expected to work on this new program. It wasn't something that I was particularly excited about, but after about nine months, a few things sort of worked themselves out, and I was back to doing afternoons Monday to Friday. And I was back I was I continued to do this 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 radio show. Now, again with the with the radio show. Back then, FM radio was regulated by uh, the CRTC uh, much more heavily than it is today. The goal was to keep FM distinct and separate from AM radio, which was still playing a lot of music, and they wanted to protect AM radio's dominance in the top 40 field and uh, for as much as they possibly could. So to keep FM separate, we had all these special programs that we had to do. And these special programs, long-form programs based on a certain theme were called foreground programs. And you had to do a certain number of hours of them per week. If you're old enough, you may remember your favorite rock station suddenly having a jazz show on a Sunday night or a blues show or right. uh, there would be a news program that ran for an hour in the middle of the day. All these things were foreground programs required by the license of the radio station. So with a, a very hefty foreground commitments. They, they needed something like the ongoing history of new music. But by the end of the 90s, those all those regulations for FM radio had disappeared. Yet for some reason, the radio show was kept on and continues today, even though there is no regulatory reason to have it.
5: A bunch of guys lived in a flat at 101 Walterton Terrace in London, and they played in a group which they called, appropriately enough, the 101ers. And one night they had a gig at a club called Nashville. The Sex Pistols were the opening act that night, and Joe, the guitar player, was just blown away. Not by their musicianship, because, well, frankly, they were awful. It was their attitude and their energy. A few days later, Joe left the 101ers and started to work on a new band with a couple of people who also thought that the Sex Pistols were great. First, they called themselves the Psychotic Negatives, but that didn't work. After that, it was the weak Heart Drops. The Outsiders, then the Mirrors and the Evening Standards. And then one of the guys suggested, how about The Clash?
0: Alan Cross, the host of The Ongoing History of New Music, is with us. Uh, the show celebrates its 30th anniversary, or I did back on February the 28th. We were talking about that original show, how Alan got into it, reluctantly to some extent. Uh What I found really interesting about that being Gen X, you know, I was born in 1970, and my dad was a big music fan, worked in the music business, is that I had spent my entire childhood with Rolling Stone magazine reading about, you know, the legends, the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, we'll never have a band like that ever again, the golden era had already been sort of solidified. And here you come along. And not only do you draw parallels between those bands and what we're listening to now, you also elevated a lot of those bands that I was listening to at the time in the 80s, whether it be New Wave or or Industrial or, you know, from Ministry to Depeche Mode to The Cure to Joy Division and New Order. You elevated those bands in a way that people hadn't before.
3: Well, yeah, I can understand why, because nobody had paid too much attention to these groups. Everything was about, uh, you know, the mainstream, high-selling, popular rock bands. Meanwhile, there was this alternate universe of alternative bands, underground bands, left of the dial bands, whatever you want to call them. And they had a tremendous following, but were very much under the radar. And the goal was to bring them into the daylight because this music was fantastic. It was really good. More people deserve to hear it. These bands deserve to be more popular than they were. And that's was one of the goals of, of the program. In the sense that, uh, you know, let, music should be for everyone. Music is, is, a, is a wonderful communal experience if it is shared widely enough. And, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to give it respect. I wanted to give it daylight. I, I wanted to, uh, to tell stories about this music. Because there were so many that, you know, at that time when the program started, there were all these stories that nobody had told. They were just sitting there like a big fat fastball over the plate. So the timing for me was very good, very fortuitous. This, uh, you know, we had entered the, the, the 90s, where, which was all about alternative music and grunge and all the associated genres. And there was really just one person doing this, which was me. You know, I, I was in the right place at the right time.
0: How did you discover, I mean, again, you can hear it in that first show, you talk about the Sex Pistols, you talk about Elvis Costello, you talk about some of the bands that you'll talk about again over the years. But how did you decide, how did you come about the practice of weaving the stories of these bands, some that people won't have heard of, into a greater narrative? Because to me, what was so interesting about the 80s is that you had all these sort of disparate music styles. It wasn't different prior, but perhaps it was a little bit different in the 80s and the, and the 90s. And yet they all spoke to each other in a certain way. And they also reflected a culture that was, was always a little bit ahead of the time, right? Like New Romantic was a kind of ahead of a style and so forth. And in many ways, I felt like what you were talking about mirrored something that was happening around us. And it was important that you talk about the music because it reflected something much greater, just as it had in the 60s and the 70s.
3: Yeah, I think so. Because we were having, especially when we get to the late 80s and early 90s, when we have Generation X coming of age musically, and they wanted nothing to do with the music of their parents or their older brothers and sisters. Uh, If you come around to like 1990, 91, we had the first Gulf War. We had a brutal recession with super high interest rates. We had an educated population. Gen Xers who were very worried that they would be the first generation in history not to achieve the same level of standard of living as, as their parents. So there was a lot of angst and fear and concern. And, you know, back then, you know, before the internets, music was a monoculture. If you were of a certain age generation, chances are you were very much on the same page as everybody else. Not today, because things have fragmented so much. So this Gen X... Wanted to have music that reflected their own hopes and dreams and fears and concerns and all that. And uh, there was this giant sea change where, you know, hair metal had run its course. Bands like the Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd and so on were considered to be dinosaur rock. People were looking for something new and interesting. And this, this music, which was introduced to so many people via grunge, because that was basically alternative music with training wheels, uh, it had just exploded. And, you know, I'll give you you know an example, 1991, first Lollapalooza tour, when it rolled through Toronto, I was given a stack of tickets by the promoter because nobody wanted to go. Fast forward a year, and there were 35,000 people at Molson Park, north of Barrie, uh, who all bought tickets. Within seconds of the show being announced, and that was the beginning of a a period of time where Gen X music grunge and associated alternative music uh, just ruled the world, and I was in the middle of it all telling the stories at that time
0: and drawing those links. What I found fascinating, again, about listening to the 1993 show is you look at the timelines between the bands you were talking about as being the influencers, you know, the, the bands of the late 70s and the, the Clashes and the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. That music was still relatively new. When you talk about them today, I was, I was thinking, when you talk about David Bowie today, early 70s David Bowie, uh, back in the 70s, that would be talking like talking about Al Jolson, right? It, it, I mean, it goes back a while now.
3: It, it does. It really does. Now, there's a, there's a whole other conversation to be had here is that this, this music, uh, because of the way it was recorded and the sonic quality of, of the recordings, uh, this music doesn't sound old. A lot of it sounds like it could have been released yesterday. And that has resulted in its, uh, an incredible amount of, of longevity. I mean, you think about the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They've been around since 1983. You think about U2. They've been around since 1976. And they're still with us. Um, And they were all part, both those bands were very much part of of the whole alt-rock thing in the 80s and 90s.
5: A computer operator was waiting for a train on the morning of December 2nd 1976 and he was thinking about the Sex Pistols. They had been in a popular TV show the night before and had said a couple of bad words. Now this had caused quite a scandal. All of Britain was talking about it. Terrible, terrible, these young men on TV. But this guy thought it was great. These guys had shaken up the system, and on that ride to work, he decided that he didn't want to be a data entry clerk. He wanted to be involved in whatever it was that the Sex Pistols embodied. The attitude, the anger, the energy. Shortly thereafter, an inspired Declan McManus quit his computer job, picked up a guitar, and changed his name to Elvis you. Costello She
3: is watching the detectives. you well, well,
0: Alan Cross, host of the ongoing history of new music is with us. We're talking about the 30th anniversary of the show. The 1000th episode of the show comes up in November. Uh, so much has changed. I mean, you still managed to create new and interesting material that talks about issues that are modern. You did a big one on LGBTQ history. You've done some black history month stuff. You've talked about vinyl. Uh, it stays very current, but I can, I, I suspect over the three decades that the way you approach things and the way you look for, for categories, for um, stories, is different. The stories you want to tell is different. The threads you want to pull on are different. How has that changed for you? Uh,
3: it, it has, because I, I'm always looking for the best stories. And if there's, there's no glory in retelling too many of the stories. I mean, there are some classics that you'll want to hear over and over again. The more I do this, the more I realize that there's stuff to talk about. And music is always changing. Culture is always changing. And I have to sort of monitor that anticipate where it's going and then hopefully pick out topics that are relevant to the listenership of the day so when vinyl starts coming back okay well we better go and revisit the whole story of vinyl because we've got a whole bunch of new people into this particular format if something like uh like streaming comes along well we got to talk about the history of streaming 30 years ago we have never really spent much time talking about lgbtq rock uh now you know it's it's part of our mainstream fabric of course you're going to talk about it um same thing black history month i don't even know if black history month existed in 1993 but but now you know that's something that needs to be addressed every every year and then there's the ever popular oh my god this artist just died we have to do a retrospective on their life and that's becoming a bigger and bigger thing because more and more artists are dying. Yeah,
0: I thought of you when Jerry Dammers died because was sort of the godfather of two tone, of ska, of, of a certain kind of ska that we came to know. And you were a big fan. And you're right; a lot of the artists that you would have featured um, would have talked about in the early shows, and even recently, a lot of them are in their 70s now. These are the sort of the the pioneers of the 70s and the early 80s. They're getting older now, and it's 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 different, isn't it?
3: Yeah, you know, if Kurt Cobain were around, uh, let's see, he was born in 1967, so he'd be well into his 50s.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, and and when you look at how to maintain the relevance, because there's a whole generation coming up who won't have heard of Two Tone, right? Uh, But when someone like, uh, when when artists of that era pass away, it is interesting to do retrospectives of them. How do you keep it? uh, Well, the podcast is a really interesting thing because to listen, your show is so perfectly suited for it. And yet it didn't exist for the first. 20-some-odd years of its existence.
3: No. The, the problem was we were worried that if we put something out as a podcast, it would cannibalize the radio show. But uh, and the other issue was, well, you can't really put music to a podcast because of the uh, the licensing issues. It is illegal to put any kind of music in a podcast. It, let's just be straight about that. But eventually, the demand for for podcasts, coupled with the difficulty and the expense of setting up a streaming channel where you could have these programs on demand pushed us into the realm of podcasting, which has been extraordinarily successful. I always knew that if we made these programs available on demand as a podcast, that they would do well. And we're, we're approaching 20 million downloads uh, of 300 and something shows.
0: And right around the world, too, right? You went from having an audience that was not just Toronto-based, but relatively within within a certain parameter. And now you have a worldwide audience for this
3: time. You know what? I, I checked once when I had the opportunity, and I think there were three countries in the world where the show has not been downloaded. Uh, Liberia, Ivory Coast, and North Korea. Wow. Otherwise, it's been heard everywhere else.
0: Does that change the way, I mean... When we look at, at the ongoing history of new music, it tends to be quite centered on a certain kind of, certain kind of music. On, but now that you have a worldwide audience, it does give you an opportunity to spread that to other forms of music as well, which I, I gather you've already done to some extent.
3: Well, yeah, I've done that. Plus, it also kind of, I used to be able to do a lot of Canadian stuff. I'm still doing a lot of Canadian stuff, but I also have to be very conscious about um, other parts of the world and what other People are are listening to. I haven't quite gone so far as K pop or Japanese idol bands, but uh, hey, that may happen one day.
0: It's early days. It's early days. Tell me some of your, I mean, you tell one story in the earliest episode that I've always loved, which was the Train in Vain story about about the about this, the floppy single that The Clash were supposed to release with NME, I guess it was. And then didn't, it became... Because when my dad bought London Calling back in 79, of course, I was a kid, a Top 40 fan. And I loved that song, even though you didn't know it wasn't on the record, you had to find it. But what are some of your favorite stories that you like to tell?
3: Well, that's one. Um, well, just to recap it, The Clash had written this song called Should I Stay or Should I Go? And they were going to put it on what was called a flexi-disc and include that in the pages of the NME magazine. But for whatever reason, that all fell apart. And they said, okay, well, we've got this song. It's not bad. We'll just stick it on London Calling. But the uh, jackets and the track listing and the cover art had already been printed up. So they just stuck it on the end of the last record. And uh, it was never listed. It was an untitled track. Yet it was pulled out as a single and became one of their biggest hits. The way it kind of works with me is that I'm always looking for stuff that makes me go, "Wow, that's cool." I do this for a living, twenty four seven. And if I can find something that makes me go, "Wow, that's cool," imagine how it will have a, what kind of an effect it will have on somebody just listening to to music as 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 a, a hobby or an obsession. I'm, I'm hoping I can imagine how it gets somebody else excited, and that's what that's my driving. It's always been my driving. Uh, Well, what's driven me to do this, because even if you don't like the topic, you will will sit there and listen to see how the story comes out.
0: Clearly, you continue to enjoy the work that you put into it and the stories that you tell from it, even if perhaps the source material isn't your favorite band or your favorite song. You still seem to be able to always find the nugget within it that makes it interesting for you, not just to listen to, but interesting for you to tell.
3: Yeah, um, this is not... It's it, this this is the program is not for me. The program is for people who love music. And I've done lots and lots of, of, of shows on things that I don't particularly care about or particularly like, but that's not the point. The point is I am there to provide a service to all music fans in one way or another, not to, you know, only talk about things that I like. And everything, even if even if I don't like something. I'll never tell you, but I will also treat it with respect because every music, every song is someone's favorite.
0: One day you're going to sit there and say, here are the bands that I didn't, that I don't actually like to listen to. You know, the Ramones, for instance, or the Pistols or any of those bands. Um, You're coming up on on, on a thousand shows. Uh, Anything planned for November?
3: We have no idea. We don't know what to do. This has never been, this has never happened before. I'm open to suggestions. How about that?
0: yeah i'll have to think on it i don't i don't think i i'm always i always find everything you come up with it seems timely and topical and i know i mean i've followed music since i was a kid as i was mentioning and i always find the way you treat those topics is always interesting so yeah you don't really want to do a, a whole retrospective you don't want to go back and play everything you've already played before um yeah we'll have to put our thinking caps I, I,
3: I have honestly honestly no idea i've got the summer to think it over
0: lastly just in terms of the ideas that you've come up with, do, do, you, do you put sort of a bank of stuff? Do you collect a bunch of things that you think are good ideas and just sort of roll them out? Or do you kind of do it on the fly, a bit like the, like the Thousandth Show?
3: No. What I do is, as I work uh, anywhere from uh, four to six weeks ahead, and uh, I'm always looking for topics, I'm always looking for information, and when I have enough information for what I think will make a good show, well, I'll slot it in and start working on it. Uh, Right now, I've got a schedule that extends into 2024 of potential show topics, all all subject to change, of course. For example, somebody's going to die, and I'm going to have to do a bunch of shows on on those people who passed away. And then out of the blue, something will hit me and say, how come in 900 and Eighty-five shows. I've never touched this topic. Oh, okay. Well, I'm working on one right now. As a matter of fact, that I, I can't leave. I have never touched. So it'll be it's 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 fresh for me. It's it's kind of a a fun challenge keeping the topic list fresh and interesting and contemporary.
0: That was going to be my last question. What's the one show you've never done?
3: Wow. I don't know because you know the answer to that is because I do so many of them. Uh, as soon as one is done. I forget about it and move on to the next one. So I would have to go back through my spreadsheet of show titles and, and, and tell and you figure it out. And figure it out. Because yeah. I, you know, I, to tell you the honest truth, I, I've, uh, you know, the, the radio station will be doing a, a replay of an older show. And uh, I'm listening and I'm going, okay, that's definitely me. That's something I would say, but I don't remember doing this show.
0: Well, I mean that's just the way it is, right? I, I I forget interviews that I do, obviously. I mean we do, but it's been it's been well. Congratulations on the thirty years! Congratulations in advance on the one thousandth show. It's been a big uh, part of many lives, and and it's been such an informative way of finding out about music that you loved, Alan. Thank you.
3: Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me.